Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi there! Welcome to History in Retrograde. This is the podcast where we use the ancient art of astrology to help us better understand the past. I'm your co-host, Chandler O'Quinn, and joining me live via satellite is my mom! Hi, Mom! Hi, Chandler! How are you? I'm doing very well. Are you ready to begin another grand experiment? I'm very ready. Let's go! All right, let's give it a whirl! Let's give it a whirl! Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being there. It's so gorgeous outside here in Texas. We had our first little cold spell. It got down in the 80s. That's right. right. (laughs) And and we needed it. We did. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We actually had a few drops of rain as well. It was Mm -hmm. amazing. Magical, actually. Yes. Yeah, fall is a magical time in Texas. Mm Mm-hmm. It gets into the 80s. (laughs) Sometimes. It's in the 90s today, though. (laughs) Uh, Well, uh, welcome to all of you. Uh, If you are longtime listeners, uh, we uh, thank you so much uh, for your support. uh, Wherever you are in this great country of ours, in this wonderful world, Uh, thank you so much uh, for tuning in. And if this is your first episode of History in Retrograde, we'd like to welcome you. Wait, that we do things here is that in a moment I will give my mom the astrological birth data of a random historical figure. She will then input that data into the back computer, and out will come the astrological birth chart, where all of the planets, moons, and stars were at the moment this person was born. She will then get, do her best to give us a blind reading of that chart, telling us what she can about the person's personality traits, motivations, fortunes of this historical figure. I will then reveal to her who our mystery history guest is, give a little background about the person, then we'll come together at the end and figure out how accurate the chart was at predicting mm-hmm. what that person would do. Mm-hmm. And without any further ado, let us begin. Okay. This is a male. Mm-hmm. Born on the 11th oh, okay. of November. Oh, 11-11. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. 1885. Well, all right. Do we have a time? 6.38 p.m. Oh, wow. That's very specific. 
All right. And where? The United States. Mm-hmm. And what town? San Marino, California. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. For 1885 in California. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's see what's going on with this guy. <laughs> okay. Well, very interesting. Okay, for those people who do astrology out there, I am uh, working in Placidus houses, and I will go through and read off all of the planets um, and their degrees so that you can know kind of what I'm looking at. So I have Sun at 19 degrees Scorpio, Moon at 19 degrees Capricorn, Mercury at 5 degrees Sagittarius, uh, Venus at 5 degrees Capricorn, Mars at 1 degree Virgo, Jupiter at 29 degrees Virgo, Saturn at 7 degrees Cancer, Uranus at 6 degrees Libra, Neptune at 24 degrees Taurus, Pluto at 2 degrees Gemini, uh, North Node at 23 degrees Virgo, Chiron at 15 degrees Gemini, and their ascendant is at 20 degrees Gemini. So, looking at this chart with Gemini rising, this person should have, if this is the correct birth time, been, uh, this person should have come across kind of, um, chatty, uh, very capable of communication. I think Gemini risings tend to be mercurial. Um, they come across, uh, as very smart and having a lot of information and, uh, sometimes even impish or, or, um, uh, how can I put this? I don't, I mean, there is, it's, it's mercurial, right? So they have kind of an impish way about them. Um, this person though has, because I'm doing Placidus houses, they, their Saturn and Cancer falls in the first house. So Saturn in the first house can give you, um, a more mature appearance. Um, this person could have kind of, a nurturing way about them because it's Saturn and Cancer in the first house. Um, having that Cancer aspect in the first house could give them, uh, people who have Cancer rising have big round eyes and possibly a round face. Um, watery kind of eyes, mm, like, like limpid pools. <laughs> Second house on this chart is ruled by cancer and there's nothing in that house, but it would give this person a natural ability to nurture with values and valuables and their money. Somehow they could be nurturing with it. Third house cusp is Leo. There's nothing in that house, but this would give this person kind of an authoritative way of communicating. It could make them 
dramatic with their communication. It could make them lead a leader with their communication. Uh, fourth house cusp is Virgo, and they have Mars in Virgo at one degree, and North Node in Virgo at 23 degrees, and Jupiter in Virgo at 29 degrees. So this is a lot of Virgo in the fourth house, and fourth house is home and community and country and um, your innermost thoughts and feelings. And this person having Virgo there gives them a mercurial way, a communicative way, a healing way, an organized way, all of these Virgo things, healing in the medical sense, not the spiritual sense necessarily, because Virgos heal technically, a technological way of uh, addressing all of these fourth house things, which is home and house and where they live and their community. Uh, fifth house cusp is Libra, and they have Uranus in Libra in their fifth house. Fifth house is ruled by Leo, and Leo aspects are leadership and entertaining and entertainment and performing and children and romance, and it's ruled by the sun. And this person has Uranus and Libra there. Libra is partners and partnerships and um, uh, legal matters, law, balance. Um, and this person has Uranus there, which is not those things. <laughs> Uranus is not balanced, and it's not fair, and it's not anything. It's, it's, it's a wild child. Uranus is out there. Uranus is unexpected. Uranus is... Um, mm, uh, lightning and technology and futuristic ways and things like that. But in Libra, it still has the connection to Venus, which rules Libra, which is beauty and love and how you love and what you love and the things that you love connected to the unexpected in your fifth house of um, hobbies and, and, and kind of joy. So there's that. Sixth house cusp is Scorpio. And this person has their sun at 19 degrees in their sixth house. So I would assume a lot of what they do has to do with work, how they work, their day-to-day -day work. Then, because I'm doing Placidus houses, midway through, we have Saturn coming in to the sixth house. I mean, not Saturn. I'm sorry. Strike that. We have Sagittarius coming into the sixth house and we have Mercury and Sagittarius in the sixth house. So it's possible that mm, their work has to do with communication because they also have this Gemini in the first house. 
So something about communication and work and, and bravery and Mercury and Sag is kind of a disregard for what, you know, whether you like what I'm saying or not, I'm going to say it because it's true and I'm not going to hold back that kind of cavalier attitude and communication. Um, this person's seventh house cusp is Sagittarius, but they have Venus and Capricorn there. Um, Venus and Capricorn is, hmm, uh, first of all, this person would more than likely, because they also have moon in Capricorn. So they have the Venus conjunct moon in Capricorn. So it's possible this person had some issues with their mother. It is possible. Uh, moon in Capricorn is not the happiest placement for the <laughs> moon take it from someone who knows um we can all commiserate together with our moon and capricorn of not uh knowing exactly how to deal with our emotions kind of an all or nothing thing also but um it would make him possibly want an older uh female partner uh more mature um somewhat um established maybe uh wealthy and then moon in the eighth house moon in the eighth house because the eighth house is ruled by scorpio which is ruled by pluto uh something could have happened to his mom um or his mom is a source of inheritance like she inherited or inheritance comes through the mother or women is any of this making sense Mm -hmm. oh <laughs> i always like it when it makes sense okay and the ninth house cusp is aquarius there are no planets in that house but having aquarius on your ninth house would make you very open-minded in the in the ways of dogma and religion and and your philosophies and things like that the tenth house cusp is pisces which would be a very creative way of addressing your career and how people see you and how, what your reputation is. Maybe your, your reputation is being creative in how you do your things. Um, 11th house cusp is Aries. There are no planets in that house. Aries on the 11th house is somehow good with leading groups of people um, because Aries leads is, you know, the, in general, it's a, in, it is the general. <laughs> um, and then 12th house is Taurus. And in the 12th house, we have Neptune at 24 degrees. We also have Pluto at two degrees Gemini and Chiron at 15 degrees Gemini. So there's something about well, on one hand, because it's the 12th house, it's the subconscious, it's a karma, it's ruled by Neptune and then having Neptune there in Taurus uh is either a creative way 
of dealing with valuables and finances and um, commodities, things that come from the earth, because it's Taurus. And then Pluto in the 12th house is death and rebirth. It is power and can be very um, metaphysical. And then Chiron is the healer. So on one hand, you have Gemini on the first house, which is communication. But Chiron and Gemini is difficulty in communication or either coming in with difficulties from past lives, which is possible, especially because it's 12th house. Um, having your Chiron there, this difficulty is coming in from a past life, but it's um, uh, in communication, the wounded healer to heal and teach and learn about communications. Am I still on track? Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you have any questions so far? Yes. Um, what profession do you think you'd go into? That is a very interesting question and something in this chart that could be several different things. I would want to say that somehow this person uh, deals with communications. Mm. Written communication, uh, verbal communication, leadership communication, creative. Um, but there's, see, there's nothing in their 10th house to tell me what their career might have been, you know, like having Mars or, you know, something there in the 10th house. I just have Pisces, which is creative um psychic um also secrets <laughs> um veiled information um their sixth house they have their sun in capricorn and their mercury in um sagittarius so somehow i mean their work could have to do with medical things it's possible with scorpio there it could have something to do with um things that most people don't want to do sometimes you'll see people who are i mean some people do absolutely want to do it especially people with scorpio aspects want to do um things that have to do with uh, um the deceased or even things in medical in the medical industry that people that's not their go-to you know what i mean like just being a general practitioner like they want to focus on this more uh taboo or 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 uh something that other people don't want to do but and maybe this person teaches about that because mercury and sag they're going to have a great amount of information to share. And then there's all this Virgo in their fourth house, all of this organization and possibly healing. 
So, I mean, rather than say, oh, this person's absolutely probably a general, you know, or this person is absolutely this or that, I, I, there's some there's some options. So I can't tell you for sure. Or I don't really want to make a guess because there's too many options. What does his self-esteem look like? Well, I think that um, Gemini Rising, I don't think that people with Gemini Rising are super focused on their self-esteem. They are more about communication. But this guy has Chiron in Gemini. So there could be issues. Uh, but part of me just wants to say, you know, he, he's, he's, he's so focused on what he's doing, whatever that is, that he's not that focused on himself. He's more focused on the project, how it gets done, um, how it is organized, if the, any of that makes any sense. I mean, I don't know if I'm going to end up knowing this person or knowing who they are, but um, their chart is... Mm, their chart is very interesting and gives them a lot of options. How would he respond to authority? Mm, well... He has Moon in Capricorn and Mercury in, and Venus in Capricorn. Uh, those things would make him more apt to respond to authority. All of this Virgo would make him more apt to respond to authority. Want to follow the rules, want to do it right. You know what I mean? He has Mars in Virgo, so I would assume he wants to do things right. This sun in Scorpio, though, with that Mercury in Sag, that could be a wild card because he could find loopholes in how he's doing it right. Is this a diplomatic person? I think this person could be very diplomatic. Diplomatic to the point of... Uh, being very diplomatic on the surface, but also holding your cards close to the vest. Like a person who might be able to talk a long game, but not necessarily give any information if they didn't want to. But for some reason, you think you got a lot of information because they talked for a long time. But maybe you did not. Maybe you didn't get all the information that you were looking for. I mean, I am looking at all the good aspects of this. <laughs> if you want to, I can look at the more nefarious ones. Well, I I, I don't know. We'll just uh, we'll just keep on going. Mm -hmm. Am I way Let's... off the path now? Ah. Uh... I'll say this. Mm -hmm. uh, things are uh, n not necessarily as uh, one might expect. Hmm. 
So that's possible that um, uh, uh, there are just things about the man that we don't know about uh, that were inside of him. But um, the, there are a few things that don't necessarily seem like they bear out. Uh, well, it could be. Reading. I mean, I don't know how accurate this birth time is, you know. Mm -hmm. Right. So, I mean, there's that. I mean, in this situation, birth time or not, he, he, by this birth date, he has Mars in Virgo, he has North Node in Virgo, and he has Jupiter in Virgo. Okay. Now he has Jupiter in Virgo at 29 degrees, which is a very powerful degree to have something. So Jupiter is already huge right? So Jupiter in Virgo is already going to make him super Virgo, <laughs> you know, already going to make him um, very capable of written and spoken communication, all right? If he's following his North Node, okay, sometimes people don't grab hold of that star and follow the north node in that case he would be following his south node which would be in pisces his south node is the only thing in this chart because i'm not doing asteroids and all that that is in his 10th house and that would make him uh an artist you know and he would be just hunkered down in his artistry but um in this situation with mars in virgo his motivation is going to be very organized and and scholarly and and mm, based in communication or possibly medical healing or literature um with these aspects in virgo um is, is there a specific aspect that is not making sense to you that I've mentioned? Because maybe I have other options with that particular aspect. I think at this point, we're just going to keep on rolling and see what happens. Oh, okay. Well, go ahead and ask your questions. Because, I mean, I've, I've been through all of the things. I mean, if you want to get more specific on other aspects to look at with regards to this, um, that's possible. Uh, Saturn in Cancer, the lesson is to learn to nurture. That is the lesson because it's Saturn. Saturn is the lesson and his Saturn is in Cancer. He is supposed to nurture. That doesn't mean he's going to do it, but it means that the universe is going to continue to, to throw this lesson at him his entire life because it's his Saturn, right? So, um, you know, with that, um, Uranus and Libra, uh, he could have been an innovator in legal terms or, or some sort of law or um, something having to do with a new way uh, partnerships and or, or something that has to do with Libra, okay? Um, uh, but the, the Venus conjunct moon in can in 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 capricorn that's going to make him very logical in how he deals with his emotions and women or at least he's going to try to control that he might just be he might try to control women because it's 
Capricorn and Capricorn is ruled by Saturn, which is control, right? Um, are any of these things helping? Not really. Okay. <laughs> well, then I don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, well we're, we're just going to keep on going. <laughs> okay. Uh, what would he dress like? Well, he has Gemini rising. So if this is correct, if the birth time is correct, if any of this is correct, Gemini rising is, um, I mean, I don't think he would dress in an elaborate fashion. Uh, he's also not going to be super comfortable, meaning he's not going to dress in a way that makes him look comfortable. He's going to dress, I guess, smart. He's going to be a smart dresser. He's going to be clean and look nice. He should. He's not going to be like, like a bohemian, I don't think. Um, maybe, I mean, if he's a poet, if he's gone straight into the whole uh, Chiron aspect of his, you know, Gemini self. But I'm going with smart dresser. <laughs> Something tells me I'm completely off on this one. Can you tell me this? Do I know this person? I think you should. Oh, okay. Well, that doesn't mean I do. <laughs> I think you've definitely heard the man's name before in your life. <laughs> okay. Well, all right. How would he respond to obstacles? I don't think this person has an issue with obstacles. Uh, they have too much Virgo, and Virgos are not going to... Uh, Virgos are going to find a way, all right? Uh, I don't think that, I think his son in Scorpio is going to tell him that he will figure out a way. His Mercury in Sagittarius is going to tell him he can talk his way out of it. His moon and Venus in Capricorn is going to give him the determination to do it. Now, these are all the good sides, okay, of all of these things. These are, I mean, even, even though the Scorpio is going to, the Scorpio is going to figure out a way, you know? Um, yeah, I think obstacles are not a thing. I don't think he gets tied down with those. How would people respond to him? Somehow, I think people see him as a leader because he has Aries on the 11th house cusp. So somehow, maybe they follow him. He doesn't have any planets in his 11th house, but that sort of um, power over groups of people, because 11th house is groups of people, I think that people would respect him. They might think he's angry, though. <laughs> he could be very passionate with groups of people <laughs> as he's leading them. Is this a religious person? If this birth time is correct, uh, this person has Aquarius on the ninth house. Um, there is a very intense aspect to Aquarius, but it's kind of 
that other side is totalitarianism. But I would think that this person on the normal uh, consideration of Aquarius on the ninth house would be open-minded about religion and kind of uh, listen to all sides. What is this person's legacy? Well, they have moon in the eighth house. The eighth house is the house of legacy. And they have moon and Capricorn in the eighth house. So it's possible that there was a legacy that had to do with money or uh, commerce, business. But somehow it is, his moon is there. So it has to do with his emotions or women, or his mother, something like that. Do you have any other final first impressions? Um, well, based on your reaction to what's happening, I feel like we may or may not have the right birthday or time of birth. So I don't know. Uh, if I know who this person is, then maybe I can get clearer on some things, but at the moment, um, I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of, uh, you know, taking a step back and looking at everything and kind of waiting to hear what you have to say. Okay. Well, then I think we're ready for a summary of our findings. Okay. First thing you said is that this person would be chatty, uh, mm -hmm. capable of communication, uh, mercurial, smart impish. Mm -hmm. He might have a mature appearance. Mm -hmm. uh, he has a nurturing way about him. Uh, he might have round features, watery mm -hmm. eyes. Uh, he is able to nurture with his valuables and money. He'd be authoritative, uh, dramatic in his communication. He is a leader through his communication. Uh, there is healing, organized, technological way uh, in regards to how he approaches his community, his home, and his country. Uh, he loves, thi the things that he loves are connected to the unexpected. Day-to-day mm. uh, -day work is very important to him. Uh, he works with communication. He is brave through his communication. He's not one to hold back uh, saying things uh, in consideration of others' feelings. He is mm -hmm. cavalier. Mm -hmm. uh, there might be some issues with the mother and women in his life. Uh, he might be more attracted to an older female partner, or someone who's established, someone who's wealthy. Mm -hmm. uh, his mother might be a source of his inheritance. Uh, he would be creative in his career. He is good with leading groups of people, creative with valuables and finances, and might have a more metaphysical aspect to him than might be realized. Mm -hmm. uh, difficulty in communication, uh, and this might deal from wounds in a past life. He heals uh, and teaches uh, through his communication. Uh, deals with communication, verbal, leadership, creative communication. Uh, 
there's veiled information, something uh, that is secret or hidden. He might work with medical things, work with things that people don't want to, uh, and he would be able to teach about that. He is not focused on his self-esteem, not focused on himself, uh, focused on the project, how it gets done, how it is organized and achieved. Um, he is apt to respond to authority uh, and follow orders, uh, do what is right, but he would also look for loopholes uh, if something uh, gets in his way. He could be very diplomatic. Uh, he holds his cards very close to the vest. He might be able to talk a lot without giving anything away that he doesn't want to. Uh, his lesson is to learn to nurture. Uh, he might be innovative in fields like law and legal things. He is very logical with his emotions and with women. Uh, he would not dress in an elaborate fashion. He is a smart dresser. Uh, clean, look nice, not uh, bohemian. He would find a way through obstacles, uh, whichever way, either talking his way around them or going through them, he is not going to let obstacles get in his way. Uh, people see him as a leader. People respect and follow him. They think that he might be angry or very passionate. <laughs> uh, he is open-minded to religion, listens to all sides. His legacy deals with money and commerce uh, and is somewhat connected to his emotions and to his mother. Is there uh, anything that I've left out? No, that's pretty close. I mean, that's, that's, going, that's reading what I'm seeing. Are you ready to find out whose chart you've been looking at? I'm very scared. This, well, th this uh, podcast is coming out on the 10th of November, if people are listening to it the day it comes out. Uh, and so uh, tomorrow will be the 11th, which happens to be this man's birthday. It also happens to be Veterans Day. And uh, it seemed like an appropriate choice to uh, find one of uh, the most colorful uh, and one of the most famous uh, generals in all of American history. Uh, this is the astrological birth chart of General George S. Patton. Wow. Wow. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, sh I mean, was he known to be an elaborate dresser? Uh, so he had a... Uh, 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 Somewhat. If you ever look up pictures, you'll see him in uh, uh, sashes, and uh, he uh, he created a a uniform for tank uh, operators that had a gilded helmet um, and a big like pantaloons. Uh, he uh, 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 himself had was always shiny and uh, had these satin sashes. Sometimes always had his ivory uh, handled guns. Like he he took his appearance very seriously, and it wasn't necessarily um, the most um, conventional. In his you know appearance. what? This sounds very Leo with all that gilding. Mm -hmm. It sounds very Leo rising, not. You know what I mean? Because he's doing all of these things that are that have to do with leadership. Um, it is possible uh, that 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 this birth time 
is coming from, are you seeing this or are you seeing this one? Is this the one you're seeing? That's what I'm seeing. Okay. So it's possible that, uh, I mean, maybe who, I mean, maybe this is his birth time, but that sounds very flashy and showy to me. You know what I mean? That sounds very Leo to me. And Leo rising would, that would make sense for Patton. But I mean, mm, I guess we need to find out about Patton and see what you have to say, you know, and, mm -hmm. and maybe if this is or, or not his birth time. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, George Patton uh, was born George uh, Smith Patton Jr., uh, he was born to George Patton Sr. and Ruth Wilson uh, in uh, Southern California. They were uh, both from wealthy families. The Pattons mm. uh, were wealthy uh, before the Civil War, but then um, uh, a lot of that wealth, uh, they, they were in the uh, Confederacy, and so a lot of that wealth got uh, uh, used up uh, during the war, but uh, moved out to California and became established again. The Wilsons on his maternal side, um, her father, so George Patton's grandfather, was Benjamin Wilson, who was the second mayor of Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And uh, they had over a thousand acres in Southern California um, and lived on a hundred acre estate, uh, grew up uh, with all of the uh, finest things that you could get uh, at that time, uh, grew up horseback riding and and um, uh, all, all these more uh, aristocratic, leisurely pursuits. Mm. Uh, he uh, was the oldest. Uh, his sister uh, was the only other uh, child in the family, uh, Anita, or who would go by Nita. And uh, they come from a, a very long line of soldiers. Uh, really, George Patton uh, didn't see any other field for him to go into. He was not interested in anything else but becoming a soldier. Mm -hmm. uh, both of his grandfathers were killed in the Civil War fighting uh, for the Confederacy. Uh, uh, they had been in uh, Virginia. Uh, that's where the Pattons had been uh, originally. Uh, and Patton Sr. was somewhat weary of uh, schools uh, and formal education and so held a uh, young Patton at home and had private tutors and a lot of his tutoring was at uh, his aunt's side and his aunt uh, was uh, a great believer in spiritualism and the supernatural Ooh, uh -huh. and uh, really um, put into George Patton the idea of reincarnation, that there mm -hmm. are souls that have been on this earth many times before. Yeah. And from a very early age, uh, Patton uh, believed that he might be one of these souls, that he mm -hmm. may have been a soldier who has served in armies from ancient times to Napoleonic times, and what he would want to do in the future would be a soldier again. Ah. Um, at the age of 12 uh, is when he finally does go to a, a formal school. There's a private school in Pasadena uh, that he goes to. And uh, he excels in things like horseback riding and athletics and history, uh, especially military history. But he really struggled in reading and writing and arithmetic. Hmm. Uh, the, these uh, pursuits were very uh, difficult for him. He was a man of action, wanted to get hmm. out in a field of something, but uh, to sit down and, and go 
over facts and figures and uh, long division. That was not uh, his strong suit. Mm -hmm. uh, so he was at that uh, school uh, until the age of uh, 18. And then he gets into the uh, Virginia Military Institute, which is the uh, school that his family, his father, his grandfather, they had all gone uh, to VMI. And again, he is skilled in things of action, things that he can use his body in. He is skilled in drill and appearance. He always gets the highest marks in these things and in athletic pursuits. But he is not skilled in math, and he is held back a year so mm -hmm. that he can get his math scores uh, up to par. Mm -hmm. Uh, he would graduate from VMI uh, 46 out of 103 and uh, immediately get uh, a commission in the U.S. Army as a second lieutenant uh, for the cavalry. Uh, he was stationed at a few different forts, and then by 1911, he is at Fort Myer, Virginia. And this is uh, one of the forts that's very close to Washington, D.C., so a lot of uh, Washington higher-ups would uh, have people from Fort Myer serve as their personal aides. And one of these men was the Secretary of War, uh, Henry Stimson. And that would become a, a lifelong friendship. A Patton would serve as his uh, personal aide, and uh, Stimson uh, would be in and out of government service throughout Patton's entire military career, and it was a very good friend to have. Um, he uh, would find and marry uh, a wealthy heiress, uh, so a woman named uh, Beatrice Ayer, uh, who was um, the daughter of a wealthy Boston industrialist. Uh, in 1912, he would be sent by the United States uh, as one of the participants in uh, the 1912 Olympics in Stockholm. Uh, he uh, competed in the pentathlon. So that is uh, a, an athletic event where you have to fence, shoot, run, and swim. Mm. And uh, he uh, consistently got uh, the highest marks for the non-Swedish uh, uh, competitors. The, mm -hmm. the Swedish uh, ones kind of swept all the medals, but he was mm -hmm. usually fourth or fifth in all of these. Mm -hmm. And he was even closer in the shooting, or at least that's what he says. So he... Mm -hmm. um, he had the pistols, and he chose to shoot with a thirty-eight, and all the rest of the participants shot with a twenty-two. Mm -hmm. And what he says is that he was shooting at the target, and he was so good that he shot his uh, bullets through the holes that he had previously made. Oh. Uh, but the judges said, no, you missed the target completely. <laughs> Uh, and uh, although Patton was very uh, upset about that, he uh, abided by their decision and he ended up coming in fifth uh, in the uh, pistol uh, shooting portion. Mm -hmm. But very, very athletic and very good at fencing as well uh, mm -hmm. and with sword, uh, uh, with swordsmanship. Mm -hmm. uh, he would stay in Europe and train at the French Cavalry Academy. Uh, in uh, cavalry and in uh, specifically uh, swords and, and fencing. And he uh, developed a whole new technique, or at least a, a whole different technique from what had previously been adopted by the U.S. military regarding cavalry charges and swords, which uh, up to that point had been focused mainly on a slashing maneuver, and he uh, believed more in a thrusting maneuver. And so he created a whole new sword and created a whole new manual of swordsmanship, and uh, when he came back to the United States, those were implemented by the U.S. government. Uh, and he was cre made the first ever in the U.S. Army to be given the title Master of Sword. Mm -hmm. In 1915, uh, he... Uh, 
organized a transfer to Fort Bliss, Texas. So uh, his original assignment was going to be uh, going to the Philippines, doing cleanup after uh, the wars that uh, we had fought there in the Philippines. But he realized that that wouldn't have been a, a very adventurous uh, thing, not a very fun position for him to be in. So he took 11 days of leave, went to Washington, D.C., and started uh, networking to try and get the people in the uh, War Department to have him transfer to Texas because he knew uh, that big things were happening with the Mexican Revolution and that the United States may be called uh, into action near the Texas border. And he was right. Uh, so in 1916, Pancho Villa starts raiding into United States territory, into New Mexico and Texas. And so the U.S. Army is then sent to rout out uh, Pancho Villa. And uh, they give command of this operation to uh, General Pershing, and uh, Pershing chooses as his personal aide, George Patton. Uh, and it is in this role that Patton is involved in uh, the first ever motorized attack using uh, the United States Army. Uh, until this point in 1916, motorized vehicles had never been used by the United States military. Mm. And so George Patton is there at the first ever use. Uh, there are uh, four uh, cars that are used. Uh, they're on a foraging mission, a uh, scout mission uh, into uh, the uh, border of uh, New Mexico and Mexico. And they find three of Pancho Villa's men and uh, kill them. And Patton has them their bodies tied to the hood of the car uh, as they uh, come back into uh, the U.S. camp. And uh, for this, uh, he is promoted to become a first lieutenant and uh, continues uh, to uh, uh, serve uh, Pershing as his personal aide. And uh, then... Uh, the uh, the next year, World War I uh, begins for the United States. It had already been raging in Europe uh, for a few years by this point, but in uh, 1917, we enter. Pershing is now promoted to the head of the American Expeditionary Force, and he takes with him Patton. Patton uh, becomes uh, promoted to captain. Uh, and he is offered uh, different positions, uh, fighting positions, and the conventional knowledge was to take an infantry uh, position because uh, that would be guaranteeing you uh, action and fighting. But Patton uh, had gotten some advice uh, while he was in an army hospital being treated for jaundice uh, to look into this new technology of tanks, that tanks were going to be the new big thing in warfare. Mm -hmm. And the United States had no tank corps. It had uh, none the tank had just been invented about the year or so before. Mm -hmm. And so Patton asks Pershing to be put in to the core of this first ever United States tank corps. And so uh, Pershing uh, accepts that and uh, makes him a lieutenant colonel in the first tank brigade. Uh, and he is there uh, at the very start of tank warfare for the United States, creating uh, what our maneuvers would be, what our tanks would look like, and what the uniforms would look like. He wanted it to be a, a very gaudy affair, I would think, with these gilded helmets, but um, it was all designed around the comfort of the soldier to make mm. sure that in these tight uh, uh, spaces that they would be wearing things that um, would not constrict their movements and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, that uh, uniform did not get adopted. 
Um, but uh, he is involved in the first ever U.S. tank battle. Uh, so uh, this uh, happens uh, just before uh, the Meuse-Argonne offensive, uh, and then uh, in September of 1918, he is involved in that offensive in Meuse-Argonne, and he is wounded. He is wounded because he's leading the tanks into battle by walking in front of the tanks <laughs> to no. show them the way of where they need to go. Uh, this was no. his entire approach to battle. Battle was to get up there right in the front, show the men that you're not scared so that they won't be scared. And so he's walking uh, in no man's land uh, uh, and, and suffering the fire uh, of all these uh, German uh, uh, anti-tank uh, guns and everything. And uh, at one point, he's actually riding on the side of the tank, telling people uh, where to go. And uh, he is wounded in the thigh, uh, and he continues to command the battle from a crater, uh, telling everybody where to go until he is um, uh, evacuated out of the situation. Uh, he is uh, commended uh, for his efforts, and then uh, World War I uh, comes to an end on his 33rd birthday, on November 11th, uh, 1918. Mm-hmm. And then we have the interwar years, and he always believed, as this man who believes in his own importance in um, the uh, scheme of military history, as this person who believes himself to be the consummate soldier, the interwar period is very difficult for him uh, because uh, there's no war and there's everyone who's doing everything in their power to try and avoid a war, even if that means uh, appeasing uh, dictators and uh, uh, powerful uh, governments uh, to avoid a war. So he's really struggling with how to figure out where he fits into this society that doesn't want him around anymore. Uh, And uh, he stays in the army. He works on... uh, um, building up the tank corps within the United States Army uh, with the different maneuvers um, that they can do and uh, the different capabilities of what tanks uh, should be able to do and technologically looking at them. Um, he also, uh, he, he, but he doesn't really enjoy being the staff officer role. Uh, by 1932, he's still in the army, and this is the Great Depression. This is when we have the bonus army marches. All of these World War I veterans who march on Washington, D.C., asking for their bonuses um, that were not supposed to be paid out until later on, but because everyone was suffering from the Depression, mm-hmm. they all camped out in Washington uh, demanding uh, that uh, the Congress give them their bonuses now mm-hmm. because they needed it now. Well, uh, General MacArthur is in charge of the U.S. Army uh, uh, response to this, and Patton is serving under MacArthur, and they go through to the camps with fixed bayonets and tear gas to clear out all the bonus army uh, protesters. And uh, Patton was very... um, Uh, upset about what he had to do, but he was given these orders and he followed through on these orders. Uh, In uh, the following years, uh, uh, throughout the 1930s, he uh, gets stationed in Hawaii a few times and he starts looking at the situation in the Pacific and realizes the threat uh, that Japan is posing uh, to United States uh, forces in the Pacific. And 1937, long before... um, 
it actually happens. He writes a paper circulated within the U.S. military saying that the Japanese are going to launch a surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. And he recommends that when that happens, that the United States needs to find all the Japanese American citizens in Hawaii and keep them in camps. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, he predicted exactly what would happen. Uh, in 1941, that happened. And uh, not necessarily because of his recommendation, but it did happen anyway that Japanese American citizens were put in internment camps, mm-hmm. not just in Hawaii, but all over uh, the continental United States as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, in uh, 1939, World War II breaks out on the continent, and uh, the United States realizes that it, it's going to be pulled into this, whether the American people want it or not. They're they're going to have to uh, participate in this war, and uh, Patton's stock really starts rising within the American military uh, with his uh, expertise in tank warfare and preparing uh, for even more uh, tanks to be used as they look at. Germans and what the Nazis are using the tanks for, they realize uh, the importance that Patton has been placing on tank warfare all this time. There's this uh, huge uh, preparatory operation of getting these tanks uh, to do a maneuver going throughout the U.S. South uh, from Georgia through Florida. Uh, Patton personally learns how to fly a plane and gets a pilot's license so that he can observe these tank formations uh, from the skies. Uh, And then uh, even after uh, the United States declares war against Germany and Japan, uh, there's still preparatory things that uh, Patton does in the uh, Californian desert to prepare uh, these tank corps for going up to battle in the African desert uh, very shortly thereafter. Even though his rank is rising, uh, his star is rising throughout the American military, he has always had this problem with diplomacy. He does not, he's not a polite character. He uh, says things uh, very gruff. Um, uh, there, there are tons of patent quotes. I've got a list of them over here that I will pepper in occasionally as we get into all of this World War II stuff. W- one of my favorites is um, that the uh, uh, it, 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 this started uh, in his time in Texas, where he used to carry uh, a 1911 Colt on him, uh, and he was. Uh, walking around, and he didn't keep it in a holster. He kept it in his belt, and it accidentally went off. And uh, from that point on, he never carried uh, an automatic like that. He always carried a single-action army Colt, and it always had ivory handles. So he started doing that in the 19-teens. Well, by the 1940s, uh, he is well known for having uh, the sidearm. And there's a reporter that comes up to him and says that the, because, I mean, it's white, it's ivory handled, but he mistakes them and says that they're pearl handled. And he talks about, you know, uh, tell me, General, when did you get that uh, pearl handled pistol? And Patton says, son, these are ivory. Only a pimp from a New Orleans whorehouse would carry a pearl handled pistol. (laughs) 
So he's very known for his colorful <laughs> language, for cussing all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were these reporters who would ask him, you know, if, if he's uh, doing these huge operations and all these people who are uh, that the, he's killing, uh, all the enemy soldiers that are killing, all, all the responsibility. Um, but then they're surprised with all the cussing that he does, that he has a Bible uh, next to him every night uh, mm-hmm. that he reads from his Bible. And uh, there's a reporter that, that asks him, uh, you know, you you have a Bible. Do you read it every night? And Patton says, I do. I read that Bible every goddamn day. <laughs> uh, so he uh, was very colorful with his language um, uh, and this uh, uh, and did not care about what anyone thought about him or mm-hmm. his, uh, uh, the way that he talked. Mm-hmm. And uh, this didn't get him a whole lot of friends when you're looking <laughs> at, you know, people like Eisenhower who are trying to organize not just a multi-departmental response within the United States, but Eisenhower has to get people from other countries and armies, the entire Allied Expeditionary Force. He's in charge of making sure that the English and the French resistance and the Russians and everyone is looking at the same objective and keeping everyone happy as they fight this war. Uh, And Patton didn't care about any of that, about Mm -hmm. diplomacy. He just wanted to get this job done. Mm -hmm. And he knew that he could do it quicker than anyone else. Um, But that did not win him a whole lot of friends. So as we start the American response in... Uh, World War II uh, and we land in North Africa, he is not put in charge, even though he is the preeminent tank expert. Eisenhower does not make him in charge uh, of the uh, American uh, uh, actions in Africa, not at this point. So uh, they land in uh, December of 1942. They start their actions in January of 43 with General Friedendahl. And Friedendahl did not lead from the front. Friedendahl led from 50 miles behind all of his men. Uh, mm-hmm. And this had a huge consequences. And one of the largest U.S. Uh, disasters in World War II uh, occurred uh, at the uh, Kesperine Pass uh, in uh, 1943. And after that, Eisenhower released Friedendahl and he puts Patton in charge of uh, U.S. Corps II. Uh, And as soon as Patton gets involved, he does a whole bunch of things that people don't the men at that time didn't think were very important. He do, they don't understand why he's putting such an emphasis on protocol, on clothes. He says, your uniform, you have to wear a necktie every day. You have to have everything shiny and pressed every day. I don't care if we're in a war zone. You have to have your face shaved. You always have to wear your helmet. Um, you have to look the part of the soldier, mm-hmm. and then you will be the soldier. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this idea of protocol and details and discipline mm-hmm. were very important to uh, Patton's overall leadership Mm -hmm. uh, ideology. Mm -hmm. And so he shapes them up and then uh, they are uh, starting to go after Rommel and they start pushing back Rommel uh, uh, hundreds of miles uh, Mm -hmm. in in some of these early battles. Uh, Eventually, Patton says that we should settle this uh, with uh, uh, Rommel getting in one tank and me getting in the other, and we'll duel it out, and whoever wins that will win the war. 
Okay. <laughs> uh, so uh, he he does all this, makes a huge name for himself in Africa, and now the next uh, part of the war is to go across the Mediterranean into Italy. And the idea is to take care of Sicily first, and that will be your beachhead into getting into uh, the rest of Italy, because Sicily, although it's an island, is only separated from the mainland of Italy by about two miles in some parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a taking of Sicily first and Patton expects to be chosen as the one after doing all this in North Africa after proving uh, the utility of the tanks that he should be the one given command but Eisenhower has to look at the whole situation and he gives it to the English commander uh, Montgomery Mm -hmm. uh, to, to do it. And so uh, they land in Sicily and he tells Patton, Eisenhower tells Patton, just protect Montgomery. As Montgomery makes his way up uh, the uh, coast of Sicily, uh, protect him uh, and uh, and that's it. Do not outflank him. Do not uh, uh, move faster than him. You have to stay with him. And Montgomery was not someone who was um, as quick uh, as uh, Patton. He mm-hmm. took his time. And uh, Patton, uh, he, his whole idea in fighting uh, was that uh, whenever you slow anything down, you waste human lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, Patton was quick. He wanted to move his mm-hmm. men as quickly as possible. And he figured out that he could actually circumvent go all the way around the island of Sicily and still hit Messina faster than Montgomery. Mm-hmm. And so he went completely against orders, said that he <laughs> never received the uh, radio uh, uh, messages telling him uh, to protect Montgomery at all costs. <laughs> and he goes and he takes the U.S. Army uh, to Palermo and then mm-hmm. all the way around the island and gets to Messina before Montgomery does. And they mm-hmm. meet in Messina. And this was uh, the continuation of a few between the English uh, Field Marshal Montgomery and General Patton. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in American eyes, this was uh, amazing that he uh, was able to completely take the entire island of Sicily, beat uh, Montgomery to uh, Messina, uh, and uh, uh, everyone lauded him for these efforts. But uh, there, there was something that would happen in the next couple of days that would be infamous in the Patton story. Uh, so there were a lot of casualties that were suffered, uh, people who were injured, uh, soldiers who were injured as a result of uh, this rapid taking of Sicily. Mm-hmm. And uh, Patton, there are two sides of Patton. One of them is he's called blood and guts for a reason. This mm-hmm. quick, uh, brash, uh, not polite, uh, in-your-face, aggressive commander. Mm -hmm. But there's also this man who is doing all this to use as little human life as possible and someone who really takes care or really is thinking of his soldiers, whether Mm -hmm. it looks like that from the outward perspective or not. He would go around making sure that everyone had uh, multiple changes of socks Mm -hmm. uh, so that they didn't get trench foot. Um, And so he would make sure and and provide all of his soldiers with even more pairs of socks than were called for. and uh, so he would also visit the, um, the, the hospitals, the field mm-hmm. hospitals. Mm-hmm. 
And he is visiting one of these hospitals, and he's seeing the men who are bandaged, the men who are missing uh, uh, limbs, and he comes to this next bed, and there's a soldier there who looks like he's completely fine. Mm -hmm. And Patton starts to get angry, and he says, why are you here? And the soldier says, I I just can't take it, sir. I just can't take it. Mm -hmm. And they said uh, that he had battle fatigue, what Mm -hmm. we now know as PTSD. Mm -hmm. And Patton... couldn't uh, fathom this. He Mm -hmm. he called him a coward and he got Mm -hmm. his uh, glove and he slapped him over the face and he picked him up and he kicked him out of the hospital and said that if there are other men like this, you need to shoot them for cowardice. Okay. Well, uh, he, uh, this... Eisenhower heard about this and tried to keep a lid on uh, this incident. Mm -hmm. And then it happened again. Uh, There was another uh, field hospital and another soldier who had no outward appearance of any injuries. Mm -hmm. And Patton again slapped him. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, so by November of uh, 43, it is now uh, widely released in the press uh, that Patton is... um, slapping soldiers Mm -hmm. uh, for cowardice. Mm -hmm. And this uh, was a huge news story in in, uh, World War II. And people uh, looked at it on both sides. There were uh, some people who were saying that this is horrible. You need to get this man out of command. Mm -hmm. These are our boys over there and he's Mm -hmm. treating them like this. And others who are saying, but look at his record. Look what he's done. Mm -hmm. Um, Look how fast he's moving. He's trying to get this war over with. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't matter what what he's doing, what his bedside manner is like. Mm -hmm. Um, But it didn't matter. To Eisenhower, he saw that the diplomatic thing was to remove Patton from command. Mm -hmm. And so he did. And he put Patton uh, pretty much on ice. He said uh, that you're not in command of any armies right now and put him up to England. And there in England, he just, uh, uh, he's used for public relations purposes to try and get up war bonds and to try and keep morale up in England. Um, But he's not actually serving in the field of battle. Uh, And this completely drives him up a wall. Um, This is now the time to plan D-Day, to plan the actual invasion of Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he's not involved in any of it. He does not actually command an army for a full year. Mm -hmm. Uh, He uh, and, and to the enemy, they didn't understand what was happening either. The Germans saw Patton as the greatest American general. Uh, The fact that he had defeated Rommel, Rommel was the greatest Nazi general, Mm -hmm. and that Mm -hmm. he had defeated him in Africa, they couldn't comprehend what, because he he slapped a couple of soldiers? Mm -hmm. The Nazis killed 20,000 of their own soldiers Mm -hmm. for cowardice. Mm Uh, this man just slapped them and you've put him completely out. They thought they were going to win the war Mm -hmm. because now they they didn't know what Patton was doing. And then they start realizing Eisenhower and the allies start realizing what Patton's role uh, could be against the Germans. And that is to command a fake army. Uh, So uh, the allies had already planned on invading in Normandy, but They create this whole ghost army uh, off the coast of England using inflatable tanks and jeeps. Mm -hmm. And they station Patton over there to make all the Germans think that the Allies are going to invade at Calais. And so when it comes to June of 1944, the Germans are ready in Calais, Mm -hmm. not at Normandy. Mm -hmm. 
and D-Day, the Allied forces land on Normandy, mm -hmm. and the Germans are completely caught by surprise because they were expecting Patton in Calais. Mm -hmm. uh, in uh, July of 1944, uh, he is finally given uh, back a commission uh, as a commander of the Third Army. This was this new tank army that was being formed, and it uh, starts rolling August of 1944, and Patton does not look back once, uh, just keeps rolling. Uh, this was a time where if you were really doing everything really right, you could get these huge thousands and thousands of tanks and jeeps moving about a mile a day. Mm -hmm. Patton is moving 40 miles a day. <laughs> Right across uh, the uh, the uh, uh, France, um, and uh, they're sending him on all these other missions to try and backtrack what he's doing, just to try and stop him from getting ahead of the rest of the U.S. and the Allied forces mm -hmm. because he's moving so fast. Uh, so uh, he pretty much goes as far as the gas that he has can take him. Uh, eventually, they just run out of gas. There's The supply lines are so stretched because he is so far ahead mm -hmm. of where Montgomery and the other Allied commanders are. And he writes a letter to General Omar Bradley saying, if you give me 400,000 more gallons of gas, I can be in Germany in two days. Mm -hmm. And that's not what the, that's not when you're looking at the diplomacy of running this huge war with all these different people that's not what eisenhower wants and mm -hmm. so he just says no you have to stay there and the germans are they, they have no idea like why why are you stopping this and so they then uh take their panzer divisions to meet Patton. Uh, and, and uh, there's a stalemate. It's like World War I conditions. The, the, the trenches are dug out, and it's exactly the last thing that Patton would ever want mm -hmm. uh, uh, because he is all about speed and aggression mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. mobility. Mm -hmm. Well, as you get into the fall and the winter of 1944, the Germans, Hitler has this uh, idea that he can break the Allied momentum if he concentrates all of his forces in the Western theater uh, in one specific weak spot of the front of the um, uh, Allied uh, forces and uh, push them back. And this is the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, and Patton sees what's going on here and sees that the 101st uh, United States Airborne is now surrounded on all sides by Germans and realizes that this is going to have to be the next thing that they have to take care of. So uh, there's a meeting called on December 21st, 1944. Eisenhower, Montgomery, Bradley, Patton, all of the Allied commanders are there. Before that meeting even happens, Patton tells three divisions from his Third Army to get ready, we're going to uh, drive all the way to Bastogne. And uh, he goes to the meeting and Eisenhower says, we have to find a way to rescue uh, the uh, 101 Airborne. Uh, Patton, how soon can you be there? Expecting an answer of like two weeks, a month, Patton says, I can have three divisions there in two days, 48 <laughs> hours. And Eisenhower goes, don't don't play around here. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that's not possible because it is a, it's absolutely possible, General. I'll be there two days, 48 hours. Mm -hmm. And uh, he says, uh, OK, fine. Let, let's see this. And uh, Patton gets on the phone to uh, the generals back where his headquarters is, says two words. 
play ball. <laughs> and uh, the uh, he has three divisions of his third army uh, with uh, over 133,000 army vehicles uh, leave uh, on December 21st. And they are at Bastogne in five days mm-hmm. uh, and uh, completely uh, uh, relieve the uh, 101 Airborne uh, and uh, completely break the tide of the Battle of the Bulge. This uh, uh, maneuvering of this many divisions, this many um, army vehicles in this short a time uh, uh, is seen as one of the outstanding achievements of World War II, and it is completely due to Patton's leadership. In uh, 1945, uh, the uh, Third Army, uh, s- uh, the-, the generals start playing uh, this game with Patton that they've been playing this whole time of not giving him enough gas Mm -hmm. because of how fast he's going. Mm -hmm. So the third army starts putting on different uniforms. They go and pretend that they're the first army Mm -hmm. and then get gas for their (laughs) tanks. And they go to dumps and they find that there are gallons of gasoline in these dumps Mm -hmm. and they start scraping all this off just so that they can keep this war machine going. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's this one point uh, where the U.S. Army uh, sends a cable to Patton and they're not even sure how fast he's going and and how fast he's making his way towards Germany. And they say it's going to take you at least four divisions to take Trier. Mm -hmm. Do not even think that you're going to take Trier. Um, uh, Hold back. <laughs> uh, do not take Trier. Uh, well, uh, Patton had taken Trier with two divisions. Mm-hmm. And so he sends a cable back saying, taken Trier, two divisions. Mm-hmm. Do you want me to give it back? Mm-hmm. Do you uh, want me to give it back? <laughs> <laughs> That's Mercury um, and Sag right there. That's very cocky. I'm just uh, saying. In, in uh, March, uh, the uh, he crosses the Rhine. He builds this huge pontoon bridge. He has this bridge built uh, and gets a whole division over this pontoon bridge of the Rhine. As he crosses the Rhine, he stops on the bridge and he takes a leak into the Rhine River. <laughs> uh, and then he crosses the Rhine into Germany. He falls to his knees and he grabs the earth uh, uh, with both of his hands and he says, with these two hands, I grab Germany. <laughs> Uh, this was exactly what William the Conqueror had done when he went into uh, uh, England. Okay. Uh, and, and this whole time, he would show up to these battlefields and he would say, uh, 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 I've been here before. I, I've been here. This is where okay. uh, Caesar made camp. And this is where uh, the food tent was. All and right. This is where, and later on, archaeologists were able to prove all of that. That's wow. exactly where all of these things were. That's so cool. Um, uh, he, he would be in North Africa and talk about Hannibal and be like, I was there. Okay. I, I know where these people were and this and that and this maneuver. And again, as he goes into Germany, he's thinking of Caesar. He's thinking of Napoleon. Mm-hmm. Not in terms of this is what they did, but this is what I've already done before. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, he goes into Germany and he finds out that his son-in-law has been taken capture. Uh-oh. Uh, and so he, going against orders, sends uh, over 300 uh, men and uh, vehicles over to uh, this German a prisoner of war camp. And it's a huge disaster. Only 35 make it back. Mm-hmm. Most... Of the 300 were taken captive. Oh, no. um, this was a huge, and, and everyone looked at it as he was just doing this to get his son in law out. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, like just a couple weeks later, that camp would be um, 
taken by the U.S. Army, and most of those men were still found alive. Oh, good. But it still shows you uh, that there was a huge ego mm -hmm. on this man and that that had a lot of positive benefits, but this was uh, definitely a negative effect of that big ego. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, and that's really one of his last things to do in the war. This is now we're getting into April of 45. He's telling Eisenhower, if you give me enough gas, I can take Czechoslovakia. If you tell me, I could take Berlin. Mm -hmm. And the, the Germans are going to surrender to the Americans first just because of how much they don't want the Russians to win. Mm -hmm. So we could have this war over days, weeks earlier. But mm -hmm. Eisenhower says, no, we have to give Russians the credit. The Russians need to go in. Mm -hmm. It would be amazing to see the what if if Patton had gotten into Berlin first and how that would have changed all of the Cold War. Mm -hmm. um, but Eisenhower playing the diplomatic uh, position said, no, you, we need you to, to, to go slower. You can't go into Czechoslovakia. You have to stay where you are. And uh, the war ends in uh, May uh, of 1945. Patton immediately wants a commission to go to Japan because <laughs> uh, the war is still going on in Japan. Mm -hmm. um, but they don't give it to him. They uh, keep him in command of the Third Army and then give him sort of this governor role in Bavaria. And uh, his post-war record uh, is very muddled. Uh, there are a lot of things where people don't know if he just doesn't know what he's talking about or he, again, doesn't care about what looks polite or what the diplomatic thing to do. But as governor of Bavaria, he keeps around a lot of these Nazis uh, because he says, well, who... Who else do I have to do these jobs? Mm -hmm. These people are here. And he says to a reporter that these people join the Nazi party the same way people join the Democratic or Republican Party back home. Mm -hmm. And this caused a big uproar comparing our American political parties to this horrible fascist regime. Mm -hmm. And uh, eventually uh, uh, Eisenhower relieves him of his duty mm -hmm. but keeps him there in Germany. And uh, it is there in uh, December of 1945 that he goes out in a car ride and his aide is driving the car and there's a truck uh, that uh, starts moving uh, into the oncoming traffic and Patton's car hits uh, this truck and Patton is paralyzed from the neck down yeah. and uh, he only lives about nine more days wow. he dies in December of 1945. Wow. Um, there are... So many things to deal with the legacy of Patton. Just I'm going to read this uh, word for word from uh, the, the encyclopedia uh, saying uh, from the time that the Third Army arrived uh, in uh, France and became operational August 1st, 1944 to the end of the war, May 9th, 1945, the Third Army was in continuous combat for 281 days. Wow. In that time, it crossed 24 major rivers, captured 81,500 square miles of territory, including more than 12,000 cities and towns. The Third Army claimed to have killed, wounded, or captured 1,811,388 German soldiers, six times the size of the Third Army itself. Wow. Uh, uh, <laughs> it, 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 it's amazing to think of the what ifs. If Patton hadn't have died in December of 1945, what would the Korean conflict have looked like if Patton was around? Mm -hmm. What would the Cold War have looked like? Patton said at that time, we're all here. All of the American strength is here. 
let's go to Russia. Mm -hmm. Let's go to Moscow. Mm -hmm. Let's end this now. Mm -hmm. Because this whole war was about um, uh, keeping people away from totalitarianism, making people free. Mm -hmm. Well, the communists certainly aren't going to do that. The Soviet Union certainly isn't a free nation. Mm -hmm. Let's go. Let's let's uh, uh, liberate all of the Soviet Union, too. Mm -hmm. We have all <laughs> he said, let's release all of the Nazi prisoners <laughs> and have them fight along with us. OK. And, and Eisenhower was like, no, no, no. We have this huge that we have this broader game that we have to play. You have to play by the rules. Mm -hmm. And Patton was absolutely against uh, all of that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, the, in doing the research for this, uh, I saw this uh, 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 lecture by a professor named Victor Davis Hanson, and he talked about uh, that the United States, the Western countries, that we have this idea of like a therapeutic democracy, that uh, within democracy, we can be diplomatic, we can be polite. There is a good way uh, of shedding all this uncivilized brutality, um, but that you need people like Patton who are uncivilized mm -hmm. so that they can go after the men who are trying to take away your civilization. Mm -hmm that uh, the values that you hold dear of freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of religion are under threat by all these different people all over the world who don't believe in those things mm -hmm. and are very aggressive and militaristic. And you need a few people like Patton who are able to be the protectors of this Western democracy, of this therapeutic idea uh, of expression. And uh, that's exactly the role that Patton served in this army, that he uh, and what he believed he was doing was this this callback to Caesar and Napoleon mm -hmm. and all these men um, who stood at the vanguard ready to protect the values that they held dear, even if that meant that they were making a civilization that they didn't fit in themselves mm -hmm. um, and. and Hansen talks about this in regards to to westerns. You look at movies like The Searchers and A High Noon and Shane. You have to have the gunfighter who's there willing to protect all the people uh with violence so that those people won't be violent anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the role that Patton sort of serves uh in the uh, uh story of World War II. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'll leave this all off with a quote that there's a lot of controversy as to whether he actually said this or not. Mm -hmm. But as a graduate of the finest university <laughs> on the planet, Texas A&M <laughs> University, um, there is a quote that says that Patton said, give me an army of West Pointers and I'll win a battle. Give me a handful of Aggies and I'll win a war. Oh, heck yeah. So uh, for, for my own part, I'm not exactly sure if he ever said that, but um, I kind of hope that he did. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, so I'm just going to say that a lot of the things that I'm seeing in this chart make sense. I'm not sure he has Gemini rising. I mean, um, I don't know, maybe, but uh, for instance, if you want to get a job done, you want somebody with Virgo placements to do it. 
And I understand the bravado of somebody with a lot of Aries placements. I understand the um, cavalier behavior of someone with Sagittarius placements. Um, but if you want the job done, the quickest, most efficient way, you really want somebody with Virgo placements because they're going to get it done. And, um, they might not, uh, follow all the rules. You asked me if this is a, po a person, you know, who, who, who follows the rules. Well, he was following his rules. <laughs> he was, his he rules. was getting the job done. He was winning the war. That's what he was doing, you know? So, um, he was following the rules. Um, they were wrong. And Vir <laughs> Virgos do have this reputation for knowing that they are right, that they are right, and that everyone else is wrong. And it can be a lot of times they are right. And they can see something that you can't. And maybe you need to hear them out because they are really good at what they do. The other thing that he has is that moon in Capricorn. Having moon in Capricorn gives you this ability to turn it off. You can turn off your emotions. You have to be burnt into it, like with a hot poker. It hurts, but you can turn it off. And when you turn it off, then you can get the job done because there's your other side. Here's this person with, you know, moon and Venus and Capricorn, right? With all of this Virgo, training all this Virgo, you know, with uh, Neptune and Taurus, that's all those earthy planets um, trined and that Neptune is going to be very creative in how it's doing it. And, and all of these things working together in this machine the fearlessness of the Scorpio at work, you know, not afraid of death, not afraid of death, not afraid of death, no fear. Then you have this Mercury and Sagittarius that's like, you know, uh, people with Mercury and Sag could say anything and, and back it up and be like, I don't know what your problem is. This is, this is it. This is, this is the true deal, you know? And they probably are saying, what other people would not say because they're telling the truth. They're just throwing it out in front of you, you know? So there's a lot in this chart that does play out. I just don't, I don't know that he had Gemini rising. And as far as uniforms are concerned, mm, you get you a Virgo. They're going to put you in a uniform. It's going to be snazzy and clean. <laughs> Virgo's going to have you clean and organized and snazzy. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not surprised with that, with that Mars and Virgo, and North Node in Virgo and um, all these other things going on. I mean, this this does play out as far as the planets. I I mean, but I mean, his legacy is not his money, really. That's so I, I, I don't think that this is his rising sign. I don't think this um, birth time is accurate. And we've been down this road before with birth times where even if people did write it down, they wrote it down later, you know, when it's like, I don't remember, just put this time. You know what I mean? Because they weren't going to coordinate that with astrology. 
at that time, they were just trying to keep records, you know, we know how that works out with record keeping. But um, yeah, I think honestly, a lot of this plays out because even if you do look at this, you know, Aries on the 11th house, but he could have, he could have Sagittarius on the 11th house. He could have Leo on the 11th house. Any of those things would give him this bravado with groups of people, you know? So there's, there's a lot that, that, uh, that is working in this machine of his chart. I just, I don't think necessarily that he had Gemini rising. But I mean, that Venus and Capricorn marrying an heiress, that would have been an, it doesn't matter what house that's in. Because Venus and Capricorn, he wanted someone, or what, whether you want it or not, your Venus for a man who identifies as a man is, uh, and also, well, I guess in general, yeah, a man that identifies as a man. They're looking for a woman, possibly older, with established. It doesn't matter. I mean, it could be both. It could be financially established or it can be, um, um, you know, like famously established. Like somehow they're well known for something because they have, um, a reputation for being successful. You know what I mean? Uh, so, I mean, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think um, on our scale of right on the money to way out in the outer space, this is pretty close to right on the money. Mm. Uh, it's not um, uh, necessarily all the things that I would have expected, mm -hmm. um, but I think that there um, are, are a lot of things. When you look at born leader, mm -hmm. uh, people who look up to him as a leader, mm -hmm. um, when you look at... Um, just a, a lot of these different characteristics, um, I mean, organized, mm -hmm. detailed, and that was something that mattered to him. Mm -hmm. And his whole leadership philosophy was based in details. Right. Um, Which is and, his Mars. And, That's his Mars. So and I, his I North think, Node. Yeah, the, the, there's, a, there's a lot here um, that bears out, just not necessarily in the ways that I would think going into this i was expecting to see you know 10 things in, in aries or right something, but, yeah um i i think yeah sure the, you, you play around with the time a little bit um and, and and it'll make even more sense probably and i think also the thing that is uh where you look at aries because aries is fearless but they get bored <laughs> Aries is like, I'm going to start this uh, corporation. And they start it and they make it successful and it's going. And then they're literally bored. They want to go start something else. So then that's when the Virgos come in. <laughs> it's like, bring those Virgos in. They're going to make sure this is a success forever. This is going to be generational, you know. Um, uh, whatever people think of Virgos, whatever they're, um, I mean, Virgos are, 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 are magical beings. They will get it done and it will be done the best. They, they take so much pride in how they do it and how quickly they do it and how organized they are. And so actually, you know, this makes a lot of sense because, um, you know, he, he has Jupiter so much North Node and Mars in Virgo. He, he he had it figured out without even having to get out a piece of paper, you know? Yeah, and, and he talks about 
that, and again, t- getting into the reincarnation and the supernatural aspects mm-hmm. of him, that he would have these battle plans that would come to him in dreams mm-hmm. at two, three o'clock in the morning, and that he would talk to his subordinates saying, I don't even know how mm-hmm. I came up with this, mm-hmm. but this is what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And and most of the time it was successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If if this is true with Neptune and Pluto uh, and Chiron all in the 12th house, even though Pluto and Chiron are in Gemini and Neptune is in Taurus still, if, if it is all in the 12th house, that's a lot of natural ability and, 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 um, you know, supernatural ability. Well, uh, that brings us to the end of this episode of History and Retrograde. Mm-hmm. We'd like to thank you all so much for listening. Um, if you would like to uh, reach out and support us, we have all the links provided in our show description. Uh, so uh, we have the links to our social media accounts, uh, to the website, um, if uh, to our YouTube channel. Uh, we have uh, lots of episodes from our season one that are posted up there. So if you'd like to actually follow along with mom as she points out these things on the chart, um, that is a great place to do it. And uh, while you're there, please uh, give us a subscribe. Uh, and uh, like uh, the uh, videos that you're watching. That all helps us in uh, growing that channel. Uh, And we have a link to our PayPal account. Uh, Every little bit helps us in producing a better quality show and expanding our audience. Uh, So uh, if you feel so inclined, we'd be very appreciative of anything you could leave there. And if you'd like to be your very own Mystery History guest, we can make that happen. Uh, Just follow the link to Chandler's Mom at History and retrograde.com and uh, she can get with you about all the details on how to have a uh, chart uh, done for you. Yes, thank you so much. And you can get anywhere um, from our website, from www.historyandretrograde.com. You can follow a link to email me from there. Um, I'm hoping that I have enough time to get um, the Houdini episode from uh, season one up before Halloween as well. And um, well, oh no, oh, we're past Halloween. Well, never mind. I didn't make it. <laughs> Um, so I understand. I see where we are now. Okay. So, um, no, I'm completely flabbergasted, but I thank you all for listening. And we do thank you so much for the donations that you're sending in. It's very, very helpful. And we're just happy that you're there all over the world, everywhere in the United States, and even here in Texas. Thank you all so much for listening. Yes, and uh, for any of you who are listening to this the uh, day uh, or the weekend that it comes out, uh, we'd like to take a moment here to thank all of our veterans uh, for everything that they've done uh, to protect uh, our great country, protect the freedoms and values that we hold dear um, in every conflict all over the world. Uh, We're so very appreciative to all of you. Absolutely. Thank Thank you so much for your service. Thanks, Chris. We love you. Uh, That concludes this episode of History in Retrograde. Uh, Thank you all so much for listening. As always, in conclusion, as long as your houses are in order and the stars are aligned, everything will be just fine. Everything's going to be just fine. Thank you so much for listening. We love you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.
Salal Creek Studios.